This is episode 53 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Peter Lee. Peter, a former journalist, is a writer for Pass the Wire, a horse racing blog. He has also written for Horse Racing Nation, and excerpts of his book have appeared in The Blood Horse. He is also the author of the novel Death and Life of Mel Evans, and has maintained the music blog Hooks and Harmony for the past 12 years. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, we're talking about his book, Spectacular Bid, The Last Superhorse of the 20th Century. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi everyone, welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Show. I'm Carly Cade, and today I am so excited to have fellow author Peter Lee on the show with me today. Hi Peter, welcome. Thank you, greetings from Atlanta. Yay Atlanta, hot Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> so how I always love to kick these interviews off because obviously this is the Equestrian Author Spotlight, I always love to ask my guests just as we get into the conversation, you know, what is your relationship to horses? Are horses in your life? Like what is your connection to horses? Because you have written a horse book. Yeah, well, being from Atlanta, is it's kind of tough to be uh, involved with horses because, well, it's not really the middle of horse country. So really, I, I started with what so many people do with Walter Farley books back in the 1970s, reading The Black Stallion, The Black Stallion Returns, Man of War. Mm -hmm. And that also happened to be the, the highlight of uh, the 1970s with Affirmed and Seattle Slough, Spectacular Bit, of course. And I, I just fell in love with horse racing. And and uh, I've not really missed any Kentucky Derby since then, uh, watching it on TV. But, of course, being six hours away from Louisville and Lexington, I don't get up there that much. But uh, being from Georgia is, is different. You try to mention Spectacular Bid and Seattle Slough to people in Atlanta, and they just look at you like you're really weird. <laughs> but uh, uh, I'm a rarity here in Georgia. Even though you're in Georgia, you, it still works because... You've written a book about Spectacular Bid. It's called Spectacular Bid, The Last Super Horse of the 20th Century. And this is what was fascinating when I was galloping around your website. It says, uh, you're, you examine Spectacular Bid from his humble beginnings. He was born in a mud puddle on a horse farm in Kentucky to becoming one of the greatest Ameri American resources. So, so tell us about this book. Tell us why Spectacular Bid. It's really a story of, of David versus Goliath. You've got a lot of stories like this, which is what makes horse racing so fascinating sometimes, where you have just uh, a diamond in the rough, uh, a horse where Spectacular Bid did not have that great of a pedigree on his uh, his mother's side. As you said, he was born in a mud puddle, almost drowned in the mud puddle. And the farmhands didn't really expect that. Uh, he was not a beautiful horse growing up, and so he was sold for only $37,000 to the Meyerhoffs. Uh, who happened to live in Maryland, uh, and they took a Maryland trainer and a Maryland jockey and went into Kentucky and New York uh, and took the racing uh, industry by storm. And a lot of people didn't like that, but 
uh, it really is a story of uh, a horse that really wasn't supposed to make it, uh, a trainer and a jockey that uh, a lot of people look down on, and uh, they they made history with it. That that's amazing, and I love how you said only thirty seven thousand dollars. To a lot of people, <laughs> that may sound like a lot, but for a race horse, that's a that's a small price to pay, isn't that right? Absolutely, given the 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 amount of money that people are paying today for horses. I know Seattle Slough went for a lot less, but uh, $37,000 uh, at that time, uh, they were in the, the smaller uh, sales at Keeneland and didn't really um, amount to much. They didn't really think they were going to get that much money uh, for the horse, and it turned out they didn't. And I love that this is a story of like kind of an ugly duckling horse without the pedigree background. And, you know, so it's like an underdog story that you that you're telling here, which which are always really fun to read. And then this is also really interesting to me. It, it, this is also on your website. A safety pin was all that kept Spectacular Bid from becoming the 11th horse to take the Triple Crown in 1979. You know, without giving away your book, can you share a little bit? about what happened involving a safety pin? Well, the big thing I found out when researching this story was that there really was a safety pin. A lot of people think that the trainer, Bud Delp, used the safety pin as an excuse for why Spectacular Bid finished third in the Belmont Stakes. And when I did my research, I found out that not only was there a safety pin uh, in the stall the morning of the Belmont Stakes, uh, and Spectacular Bid actually stepped on it, Bud Delp uh, took the, the pen out and, and watched him walk around and thought everything was okay. But uh, not only that, but it actually affected his racing. He only ran on one lead for the entire race. Mm. And if you know anything about horse racing, it's kind of like carrying a, a briefcase through an airport for the entire way on one hand. I mean, it gets really tiring. And uh, that's a, a definitely something that affected Spectacular Bid and led to his defeat. He didn't race again for another almost three months. So mm. it, it uh, really did affect him. And I, and I felt like that was worth pointing out because, you know, maybe new horse owners listening or people who just own or like horse books that are listening that maybe don't own horses, something as tiny as a safety pin can make a huge impact in a horse's life if they're punctured in their hooves. So this was, that was pretty interesting to me. And I thought a good opportunity to share some knowledge about, you know, looking, don't leave nails, you know, watch out for nails. Like as a horse owner, I'm always walking around the pastures, picking up big rocks, like even a big rock can cause damage and like getting the rocks out of my pastures. There's, you know, you have to be always aware of what's going on with the footing. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then I know you have a copy of your book there with you. Would you, would you hold it up and maybe talk a little sure. bit about the cover design? Uh, the cover design was was done by the University Press of Kentucky. This is Spectacular Bid at Meadowlands. It was just one of many photographs that I had sent to the University Press and uh, had them design something for me. And uh, they did a fa fantastic job with it. I'm, I'm very pleased. It, it captures him alone, which he, he was a lot of times when he was up at the front. Yeah, it just couldn't have turned out better. I was I was really pleased with it. Yes, and it sounds like you had some creative control in the cover design. You said that you submitted the the pictures that you thought would best suit the cover. That's that's great. I did, and they, they actually showed me two different cover versions, and I did a little marketing uh, research uh, with that and, and asked people which ones they, they liked better. So uh, I think we came out with a good one. Yeah, it looks beautiful. So what compelled you to write in particular about Spectacular Bid? Was there a reason why he piqued your interest? 
at the time, I won't, I don't want to give away my age, but at the time <laughs> I was about 11 years old when Spectacular Bid ran in the Kentucky Derby. And as all 11 year olds do, I picked the horse with the best name. Horse struck my fancy with their name. I immediately uh, cling to and Spectacular Bid just sounded like a, a, a wonderful name. So I had little or no idea that he was the favorite and pulled for him. He won the Kentucky Derby. He won the Preakness and he just broke my heart when he uh, lost the Belmont. I'd had no idea that there was a safety pin involved. Mm. had no idea that he would go for the rest of uh, his four-year-old season undefeated and that he would have a walkover in the Woodward Stakes. Uh, a lot of things that happened to him, I just totally forgot about because I was living in North Georgia at the time. And well, we just didn't get a lot of horse racing news. Mm -hmm. But his his story stayed with me throughout the throughout my life. And when I went back and started doing some research on him, I, I thought, this is a real good story. This is something that hasn't been told before. And I wanted to, to let everybody know what a great horse he was, because even though he didn't win the trip crown that's not the true test of greatness uh with a lot of horses that is true didn't he go on to be a pretty great sire did that end up happening for him it did not actually oh. that is and that's what one thing that is is kind of like lightning in a bottle where mm. he he was just this freak that happened to come along as i said didn't have a, a lot on his mother's side he had some bold ruler on, on his father's side but mm -hmm. his progeny really did not fare that well he did not uh, come up with any stakes really good stakes winners only two or three stakes winners mm -hmm. and uh although they seemed to last a long time in terms of their their longevity they really didn't uh, come up with any any good uh, stakes wins or uh, or any famous uh, progeny for that matter. That is really interesting. So he was just a very unusual horse then in the fact that he went out and he did this amazing feat but then didn't go on to produce any winning what do they call them is it get after after the fact. So that's that's really interesting to hear because you'd think this freak, even though he didn't have the bloodlines, would come up and then he would produce some of his own. So that's right. a compelling story to tell. A very yeah, he was syndicated at, at Claiborne Farm for a record uh, amount of money, about $22 million at the time. Mm. And everyone thought they would expect a lot of things from him. But when he died uh, early in the 2000s, he was standing for only $3,500 wow. uh, in Milford Farm in New York they moved him there. So his projections uh, did, did not really take. And uh, and he spent the last few years of his life in a, in a lonely little farm up in New York. Well, that's sad, but you gave such a tribute to his life and the really phenomenal horse that he was by writing this book about him, which was incredible. And you mentioned your research a couple of times. How, how did you research this book? Like, how did, where did you go? How did you get involved? Like, Obviously, it was a spark from that 11-year-old mind way back when, and then, and then it came to fruition years later. So how'd you get into the research? Uh, I have to tip my hat to Rhoda Ferraro and the staff at Keeneland Library, who just did a, a wonderful job of um, helping me out with the research. Whenever I wanted something and didn't know where to find it, they were there with, with me. They have daily racing forums, blood horse periodicals dating back decades and decades. 
And once I, I got that, that gave me a, a pretty good feel for what Spectacular Bid did during his career. And then it was just filling in the holes. Chris Goodlett at the Kentucky Derby Museum had some interviews with Ron Franklin, the young jockey who rode Spectacular Bid for a while. And I actually uh, did a little detective work and tracked down Ron Franklin and got to talk to him several times about his ride on Spectacular Bid. Uh, Ron just recently died about a year and a half ago. So I was very fortunate to be able to talk to him and make his acquaintance. Talked with Bud Delp's family and uh, some of the owners of Spectacular Bid. So really got the good, good rounded view of not only the horse, but the players around him. What actually happened, how they felt about everything, and, and what, what contributions they made toward the success of the horse. Oh, that's amazing. I can only imagine. I wish I could be a fly on the wall during some of those conversations you had. I'm sure you, it was fascinating talking to the people who were part of this brilliant horse's life. And, you know, while you're having these conversations, did you discover any like surprising information that, that kind of threw you for a loop? Well, besides the safety pin, that was the, the big revelation, I think, was mm -hmm. uh, really finding out about uh, how that really affected his race. But I think the big thing was the relationship between Ronnie Franklin and the trainer Bud Delp. Ronnie Franklin was about 16 years old, uh, had never set foot in a barn, and his neighbor took him to Pimlico one day, and Franklin fell in love with uh, the whole place and said, I, this is what I want to do. He was only five feet tall, of course, so he would make a perfect jockey. And Bud Delp hired him on the spot to hot walk horses after they had been running. And uh, he worked his way up toward jockey and really became sort of Bud Delp's adopted son. But with that, there was a sort of a, uh, a love-hate relationship and uh, Ron had some difficult rides on Spectacular Bid, and Bud Delp uh, really chastised Franklin in front of reporters, uh, the crowd, and really embarrassed him a lot of times. And so he, he took a lot of abuse and, and took a lot of praise from Delp as well. Delp was always behind him, even though he, he criticized him a lot and treated him like his son. So it was a very strange relationship, but one that was really worth unraveling. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like all the way around this story is a bunch of strange, you know, like the interaction between the humans around him, his youth growing up in the puddle and then being kind of an ugly duckling with no background and then his you know, chance to be a, a stud and that not working, like just so many like tricky turns and curves to this story that you got down on paper. That's like so intriguing. You know, I was going to ask you this question too, because Spectacular Bid actually did go on to win 26 of 30 races during his career. That's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, he made, he made his owners a lot of money. So, but what do you think made him have such a heart given that he didn't have the pedigree like what what would you say about this horse that was what made him special well i had a chance to talk to william knack the the great writer for sports illustrated uh who also wrote the the book on secretariat that became a movie a movie and he told me that spectacular bid had several different gears mm -hmm. that he would engage in once he was racing in a race you would uh count him out he would kick it in the next gear, pass the next horse, just when you thought he was out of it, here came another gear. And he would have several of these gears during a race. A lot of horses, when you 
take the whip to them. They, they take their, make their move maybe in the stretcher or on the turn and that's it. Mm-hmm. Spectacular bid had much more. And just when you thought he was out of a race, he would give it a little bit more and, and take the, the race. And as you said, 26 of 30 races, including an undefeated four-year-old season, he won 12 races in a row at one time and 10 races in a row. There was a, a the Florida Derby, in which Ron Franklin, that was the, the race where Bud Delp really lit into to the jockey um, pretty bad for his ride. And it was a bad ride where Ron Franklin had to, to hold him up several times during the race, almost bumped into a couple of horses. And Spectacular Bid was out of it two or three times, but went on, kicked in that extra gear and won by three or four links going away. So um, it takes a special horse to do that. And uh, he indeed was something special. That's amazing. I have goosebumps. I mean, I think what you're describing is heart, you know, having heart and it sounds like he loved his job. And, you know, that's something that you, I don't think you can breed into animals or humans, you know, either that heart is there or it's not. So thank you for sharing that with us. That's something, it just sounds like a special yeah. horse. Uh, and here is something so exciting and congratulations to you. This book is a semi-finalist for the Dr. Tony Ryan Book Award, honoring the year's best book about thoroughbred racing. How does being up for such a prestigious literary award make you feel? That's got to be amazing, an amazing honor for your writing. Yeah, it's, it gives me goosebumps as well, just to, <laughs> just to hear that. Uh, knowing that I'm, uh, you know, mentioned with some of the best writers in the country, uh, Lenny Shulman, um, Brian Bouillet, who, who's written a great book about, about the Travers. It's, it's just amazing to, to be in this situation and to be mentioned with, with all of those. And, uh, you know, it's, at this point, I, I really don't, I really don't expect anything. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a semifinalist and I could not be happier with that. Uh, that is a huge nod to your writing. So just to be in that category or in that group of writers is this is a very big award in thoroughbred racing. So congratulations. Thank uh, you. And I wish you the best of luck. When are the, um, when are you going to the, the event where they reveal the winner? I think they will get down to um, some finalists, uh, maybe two or three, and mm-hmm. then they will have a, an awards banquet. So if, if I get down to that, that final, I, I may show up at the awards banquet, given, of course, the, the, the current pandemic situation. I don't know. but True uh, that. We're, yeah. We're we'll every, see. Everything's kind of messed <laughs> up about, around that, isn't it? Uh, yes. But I will keep my fingers crossed for you. And Thank um, you. good luck on that journey, which is exciting. And I wanted to mention, too, you've written another book. But Spectacular Bid Book is your first horse book. So to be nominated for this award with your first horse book is really stellar. Yeah, I was, I was real pleased about that. First book was a novel and then going to a, to a nonfiction uh, genre, especially horse racing, something that people, again, here in Georgia just don't really think about, mm-hmm. you know, is, is something unusual. But you got to go where your loves and your passions are. And that's definitely what I did. And I'm pleased to have the recognition uh, that all the hard work paid off. Yeah, and that's great advice for authors or aspiring authors listening in here is to go where your passion is, because that makes the writing of the project a lot easier, I would imagine. Is that the case for you? Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're absolutely right. Because it's, it that makes the research fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes you in directions that you, you really didn't know you were going to go in. And, and the writing really takes on a form of its own where you're, 
uh, actively involved in what's going on with the writing, the characters that you're mentioning, uh, you actually feel them, especially mm -hmm. with the horse. And uh, I, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, I, I couldn't write a book about economics. So you know, <laughs> this, this is something I got to do. Yeah. It cre well, creativity is supposed to be fun. You know, we're not supposed to make it hard for ourselves, you know, so choose something that you're passionate about. And then from my experience, a, a very well-written nonfiction book actually reads like a novel, like a story. Did you frame up your book in that sort of storytelling sort of approach? It didn't start out that way, but, you know, all the things that I've mentioned about Bud Delp and Ronnie Franklin about Spectacular Biz Beginnings really had the the, the feeling of, of a story. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, this is make a really good movie. And mm -hmm. I, I was thinking, well, <laughs> if anybody's out there, yeah, sure, great. <laughs> but it, it does tell a, a neat story uh, from the beginning all the way to the end, the end being where... Uh, he ran in the Woodward Stakes by himself. It was a walkover, and no other horse dared to to run against him. And so it it's really the crowning of a, a champion after so much heartbreak, so much uh, disappointment uh, uh, with the Belmont Stakes for him to to really come back and and become a real champion. I think was was just uh, a perfect ending to the story. I certainly would like to go watch that movie. That sounds perfect for a movie. <laughs> and you mentioned walkover a couple times for a race. What what does that mean? A walkover is simply a, a race where no one else enters, no other horse enters the race. And mm. uh, there's one horse that runs and he runs all around the track by himself, wins first place. And it's really the mark of a, of a, a horse where owners and trainers just don't want to face him. The last walkover was back in 1949, I believe, with Coltown, one of Citation's stablemates. And usually you'll have somebody running for second place. You know, there's, there's money for second and third place. But uh, at the time, there were only two other horses that were willing to maybe take a shot at Spectacular Bid during the Woodward Stakes. And they both uh, decided, no, I'm just not going to do it. So uh, Spectacular Bid went into the starting gate by himself. The bell rang. He went off and actually ran a mile and a quarter in about the same time that he ran the Kentucky Derby. So it was not just a waltz around the, the track. He did a, an amazing job during that race. So he was fast. So he was that good that other owners did not want to put their horses up against him and have their horses hearts get broken, right? Because I couldn't get to them. Is that, that's exactly. generally why that happens. Exactly. Wow. That's fascinating. I'm so glad I asked you to explain that. I, I, you know, I've watched a lot of, horse racing stuff, but it's not my expertise. So that, I just learned something today. Thank you. Well, you don't see it a lot. That's why it doesn't come up, but uh, it's, it's something special. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And it sounds like such a like heartfelt, heartwarming end to and way to end a movie. So another, another fingers crossed right there. <laughs> so Peter, are there any uh, records that Spectacular Bid holds that you want to share with listeners today? So they know like even more about this amazing horse? Absolutely. For not only did he win 12 races in a row at one time and 10 races in a row, including an undefeated four-year-old season, but he still holds the record for a mile and a quarter uh, for the Stroobe Stakes in 1980 when he ran it uh, in 157 and four-fifths seconds. And it's still a record. 
uh, one that's, that's been uh, now on the re record books for 40 years. And uh, even his second place challenger, Flying Paster, set the track record. Oh, wow. So it was something that indeed, uh, you know, not even Secretariat could touch. And I think you shared with me there might be a YouTube of that record being set that I can share in the show notes. Absolutely. You can find that on YouTube. Um, I've got a playlist uh, on, on my account where you can find Spectacular Bid 1980 Strube Stakes, S-T-R-U-B Stakes. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. This horse just sounds incredible. <laughs> uh, and your, your book is, is traditionally published. Tell us what it was like working with the University Press of Kentucky and kind of how did you begin the relationship with them? What was it like working with them? Well, my first book was self-published. Uh, it was a novel, and uh, it's very difficult to self-publish. And having a traditional publisher like the University Press of Kentucky behind you, working with you on the, the cover, the, the back cover material, helping mm -hmm. you with the indexing, getting you a full-fledged editor who will help you make it better, there's just nothing, nothing better than, than having the strength of a, of a press behind you. Mm -hmm. uh, the people at the University Press of Kentucky were, were fantastic, easy to work with, and, and just made my job uh, a lot easier than it was when I was publishing my novel. Yeah, and, and you said self-publishing is hard, and I, I think what you're alluded to there is there's a lot of small detail that you yourself as the author have to take on, whereas a traditional publisher handles the cover design hooking you up with an editor where you don't have to go search for one. So a lot of the minuscule stuff and the techie stuff takes you out of the equation so you can just write your book, right? Was, is that sort of your experience and why you said self-publishing is hard? Yeah, self-publishing, yes. you have to know everything. You have mm. to uh, go to uh, some website to find a good book designer and you don't know what you're getting. So mm. you may be spending money on something that you don't like. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you're doing the same thing with an editor, mm -hmm. a proofreader, a developmental editor. And, and then, of course, marketing is all up to you as well. So mm. you're in a huge stadium screaming, uh, buy my book, buy my book. And it's <laughs> something that you've done yourself. Uh, and having somebody like the University Press of Kentucky scream for you, or at least mm -hmm. scream with you, mm -hmm. uh, is is a lot more reassuring, and 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 I'm thankful for that. Absolutely, and they have all those resources in house, so it does make the whole process a lot easier. Now, let me ask you this question: Do they have a chunk of your intellectual property? So, if your movie rights are option, they get they get paid off on the movie too. <laughs> I'll have to talk to my lawyer about that. That's a good question. Yeah, you need to check the fine print. So that that is that is one one thing that you do have to watch out for with traditional publishing. And not that it's a bad thing. You just got to read your contract because you could lose your audiobook rights or you know sign away part of your merchandising or sign away those TV rights because that is all part of your intellectual property with the book and that stuff shows up in contracts. So you know just a be on the teeter-totter of, you know, the pros and cons of both sides, you know, so there's pros and cons to both sides and a lot of people are doing independent and traditional hybrid models. So there's so many different ways to write a book. And, and yeah. yeah, and and it's really interesting to talk to authors experience on both sides and you have that. So how did you find the University Press of Kentucky? I've heard they're very wonderful to work with. I actually interviewed one of your colleagues about a week ago, Jennifer S. Kelly. So how how did you connect with them? Did you ask other people where to go or did they find you? 
I was all ready to self-publish this again and do my own thing. And Jennifer Kelly, uh, I, I talked to her and she said, you know, my, I'm publishing a book with the University Press of Kentucky. You ought to check in with them and see uh, if they can do anything for you. I had already written the entire manuscript. Mm. So I had uh, just really sent it to them and said, here it is. This is what I plan to do with it. Do you have room for me? And it, as luck would have it, they were doing a Horses in History series. And this fit in perfectly with what they were doing. Jennifer Kelly's book, Sir Barton, mm -hmm. uh, is a fantastic book and uh, was released in the spring. And then my book was released in the fall of last year. So it, it just fit in perfectly with what, what the University Press had going on. Oh, that's great. I love hearing stories like that. And you, this is a classic example of authors uniting and taking care of each other. She recommended the publisher to you and you actually fit right in. And then it's almost like the universe opened up and said, come to us, Peter, you have the right book at the right time with the right fit that goes exactly in this category of what we're doing. And that's how things magically happen for authors. So I love to hear stories of things like that happening. It was, it was very good. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy it happened and very thankful to Jennifer. Yeah. Well, we, you know, that's what's so important about it. We, you know, looking out for each other. We're always, always stronger when we work together, I think, than when we're trying to do our own thing in our own little boxes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so with this book, how, how have you been reaching your readers? Has there been any interesting things that you've done, particularly in this time of quarantine and stay at home uh, to get the word out about your books? Well, that's difficult because it's, I I'm an, tend to be a, an introvert and all authors, I think, uh, <laughs> tend to be an introvert. And uh, so marketing is just something we hate to do. And it's, it's something we're, we're not familiar with, something we're not comfortable doing, and uh, especially trying to say something good about ourselves and about the, the work that we produce is, is very uh, uncomfortable. Mm. So it, it took a lot of uh, work to get across that, but as, as part of working with the University Press of Kentucky, I came up with a marketing plan and told them exactly what I was planning to do. And a lot of it uh, revolved around social media. And Facebook is amazing with what they can do with targeted advertising. And mm -hmm. uh, I started a Facebook page, Twitter account, Pinterest account. Mm -hmm. I, I tried everything just to see what really would fit mm -hmm. uh, that demographic. Did a lot of podcasts, of course, and radio uh, shows. And as you said, the, the pandemic has, has really kind of put things uh, to a halt. Uh, I was going to be at the uh, Kentucky Derby Fan Fest at Black Eyed Susan Day. And so now it looks like those things really aren't going to, you know, come to fruition unless something amazing happens. But, mm -hmm. you know, I continue to uh, blog and continue to post on social media and uh, continue to do things like this and, mm -hmm. in hopes of getting the word out. Mm -hmm. And that's great. I mean, that's great. That's what you can do right now. And it, next year, right? Next year, you can get to those events and pick up, you know, where you had to stop this year. But events are very powerful for authors because you get to meet readers in person and talk to them and tell these wonderful stories. But in the interim, people are listening to podcasts a lot. So this is a great way to get the word out. And I'm sure, you know, the thoroughbred racing platforms were eating up your story about spectacular bits. So I'm happy to be part of helping you get the word out about this book. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for being on the show. So in your, I mean, you just mentioned that marketing is one of the most difficult parts of being an author. And I, but I always like to ask this question of my interviewees because everybody has a different take. So I'd like to ask, you know, for you, beyond marketing, what has been the hardest 
part about being an author, but then on the flip side, what's been the very best part of that process? Ah, uh, that's a great question. Uh, the best, the best part is, is really seeing the final product, mm -hmm. um, opening that uh, box, seeing all of the work that you put in all of the, the sweat and tears and, uh, research that you've done. And it looks good. You know, it, it, it's, it's not something that you just threw together and put in a, went down to Kinko's and put uh, in a coil, mm -hmm. uh, a spiral bound notebook. It's, it's something that's professionally done and it's got your name on it. And there's, there's really nothing that takes away from that thrill. That's something that keeps me going when, when things do get down and I, I'm not really sure where I want to go and what I want to do next. Mm -hmm. In terms of the most frustrating thing, I, I you know, I, I still just have to go back to, to the marketing. Mm -hmm. um, and I know I've said it before, but it's, it's a, almost a full-time job. Mm -hmm. Once you do publish your book, you know, once you publish your book, it's not, if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of proactive things that you must do. A lot of, uh, massaging and, and talking to the right people and getting on the right shows and, uh, finding where you're, your audiences. I mean, there, there are a dwindling number of horse racing fans, but there are still out there. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of people who remember spectacular bid from the 1970s and, and the triple crown years of affirmed in Seattle slew. So, uh, finding those people and, uh, convincing them that this was a story that they needed to read is, is a, is a real challenge. Yeah. And, that makes a whole lot of sense. And, and you may, this is a complaint that a lot of authors have, actually. You are not alone. Uh, and if other people listening in are, are here in this space, you're not alone. Because you mentioned it earlier, a lot of us are introverts, right? But nowadays, you can't just sit and write books. Like, even if you're with a traditional publisher, there is an expectation that you handle marketing as well. Is that right? You're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. There's only so much that they can do because they've got a full slate of books and they can't give you a hundred percent attention because they've got probably, you know, 15, 20 other books that they're also pitching to uh, bookstores and podcasts and radio stations. So they, they do do a lot for you, but they do expect you to come in with an idea of, I want this book to sell and here's what I plan to do to, to make that happen. Yeah. And you mentioned that you, you actually created the market marketing plan, which you then gave to them and said, this is what I intend to do. So, so that, that is something that is changing. Um, publishers have reduced staffs. They can't help as much as they used to. And the expectation now is whether you're independently published or traditionally published, the author has to pick up and do some marketing. And that, that's, that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. But it, when you write a book, you're actually starting a business and marketing is part of the business. So this is, this is very interesting conversation to have. That's why I put this podcast together to help with marketing ideas and strategies and another way for first book authors to connect with each other, but also get ideas and unite and support each other around marketing tips. So hopefully this is helpful. <laughs> this is definitely a great venue for doing that. And uh, I applaud you for doing it because I've, I've listened to lots of podcasts and gone to a lot of web pages, typed into Google marketing help publishing book <laughs> and uh and you know trying to find any tip or trick that that can mm -hmm. can help weigh the the balance and, mm -hmm. and and make a difference so yeah and i got really niche so i'm talking our genre right here we're yes. all the worst people so you know so hopefully that that helps people but and i wanted to ask you too uh 
how long did it take you to write your spectacular bid book? Uh, was, was, was in, and did you have any writing routines to help you get that done? It took me about two years uh, to do the research and to do the writing. The, most of it was the research. The research mm -hmm. probably took about a year and a half. And then the book, I don't want to say it wrote itself, but I was like a demon unleashed. I just wrote and wrote and wrote because I had the book all in my mind exactly, mm -hmm. especially from a timeline perspective, what happened when, and I had read all of the materials that I had uh, researched and I, I knew that when I got to this story, oh, I remember there was a quote from somebody who said this, uh, and I remember that this happened in the story. So, not taking a lot of time, I just uh, uh, got home from my regular job and sat down uh, until 10 or 11 o'clock at night writing just full blast and until I got a first draft and then got it edited, uh, redid it, and you know. A lot of people say writing is hard. Writing sometimes for me is easy, uh, getting something down, but writing well mm. is very hard. Mm -hmm. And just because you have something down on paper doesn't mean it's the best thing in the world. It's probably not. Uh, and so you have to go back, rewrite, mm -hmm. edit two or three times, and then get a professional editor to do it. It's, it's a long process. It is, but you can't do any of that other stuff unless you have your first draft done. So it's okay if it's not the best first draft, but you've got, you know, once you've got that done, you can go in and improve upon, you know, so, so that's a, that's great advice though. You said, you know, writing well is difficult, but you got to get it down first before you can go back and even improve it. Right. Because so many people go backwards and try to edit forward, but that, that isn't the best strategy because then you'll never get your book done. <laughs> right. A lot of people belabor over a, a paragraph and try to figure out, well, how do I, how do I word this? It just gets something down and, mm -hmm. and you can go back and look at it and go, mm -hmm. and, you know, try to figure out how to improve it, but at least you've got something to throw darts at. And mm -hmm. that's, that's usually what I did was put something down, go back and look at it and see how I could improve it. That's, that's great advice. Yeah. And then, you know, you, you touched on the editing and the copy editing and the content editor that helps you get everything feeling right. So there's a lot of steps in, in a final product and it sounds like you had good, good uh, support system with, with your publisher, which is really important. Is there anything that a listener to the show might be surprised to learn about you? Because I, I think you might be a bit of a music fan. <laughs> I am. <laughs> yeah, my Facebook uh, friends list is kind of weird. I've got all of these equestrian uh, friends, and then I've got a lot of musicians, big music junkie, and maintain a blog called Hooks and Harmony, which is based on 80s music and melodic pop, uh, sort of like the Beatles. Uh -huh. And I, I write for that pretty regularly. I've been writing for that since 2008. My first book, uh, The Death and Life of Mal Evans, was really a uh, alternate history of what might have happened if the Beatles had stayed together during the 1970s. Oh, so cool. it was, it's a totally different <laughs> from spectacular bid. <laughs> but again, you have to go with your passions. And my passions are, are music and horse racing. And uh, I will continue to be to be doing that in the future well I you know and I love what I love that I discovered that about you because I think that we could actually be friends if we met in person because I happen to be a huge music aficionado myself I actually used to work in the music industry as an oh, uh, artist development representative so I feel like we could have a lot of really cool conversations and what can you know what 
else can people find on your blog, which I'll link to in the show notes if they happen to be music fans, you know, because we're all creatives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of series that I do, Desert Island Discs, where I just talk about records that you can't do without. Uh, I've got a Where Are They Now, Whatever Happened to Men Without Hats, you know, a, a, an 80s one hit wonder. So there are lots of different angles that I take, but it's mostly about 80s music. I'm a big Prince fan, big U2 fan. So I tend to write about them a lot, but it's a, it's a good, uh, it's a good avenue and, and piece of therapy for me to, to write about what I love. That's, I think, one of the best pieces of advice that you've given during this entire interview for other authors or creatives is pursue your passion, follow your muse, do what you love, what makes you happy. And because it's really an expression of love when you create anything like this. So good on you for following your passions. Thank you. And it does make it a lot easier. Oh, sure does. I couldn't agree with you more. That's why I write about horses. <laughs> <laughs> and why you write about horse riding and music or horse racing and music. So I have to ask, what are you curious about? What's next? What are you thinking about? I don't know. <laughs> there are, you know, one thing I love about horse racing history is there's so many stories that have yet to be told. Mm. Uh, I've got behind me uh, about 15 or 20 books on famous horses. And, uh, but there are so many other horses that, uh, whose stories have not been told. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's just uh, challenging to figure out exactly what you want to do next. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I have talked about is, uh, a book about the rivalry between Damascus and Dr. Fager during the 1960s. They met four times. Uh, Damascus won two races. Dr. Fager won two as well. And those are two of the, the greatest horses of all time. Mm -hmm. And they, they ran up against each other. I've talked about uh, possibly doing a, a book about Zenyatta, the great uh, filly from Victor. the early uh, or the late 2000s. Mm -hmm. And also the, the horse, the crop of horses from 1957, Bold Ruler, Iron Lee, a lot of those horses round table that was probably one of the greatest crops of horses uh, ever to uh, to assemble on the horse racing track so I don't know which one I'm going to do I've, I've been doing a lot of uh, research on the Damascus Dr. Fager rivalry and talked to some people so that might be what I do next but they're all so good I, I just don't know <laughs> Maybe well, I'll do a musical biography. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's awesome too. I love that. You know, and it's like, I, well, what I'm hearing is that the possibilities are kind of limitless. You've got a lot to choose from and a lot is sort of sparking your, your creative interest. So you've got a lot to choose from. And I see like, there's this possibility for this story between like history and music and horse racing and like kind of intertwining both your passions into maybe another fiction novel. That could be really fun too. Oh, that would be fantastic. I'll have oh, to think about cool? that. Like, yeah. I would be all over that because like the music history intertwining with the horse industry and like what kind of music did they listen to at the time? And just like, you can get really creative with that. Like the parties around the horse racing industry and, and all the, in the hats and all the fashion and all that stuff. That could be really fun. All right. I'll have to give you credit if I do that. <laughs> Maybe we can collaborate somehow. But yes. Take it. It's yours because <laughs> I'm, I've got too many other projects that I'm working on too. I'm just like, you. Yeah, I don't know what's next. And I think another thing worth mentioning too is it's good to take a break after you complete a book because you're still, when you finish the book, you're still with the book because you're marketing the book and you're doing all the follow on things that has to happen. You make sure that book has its best life, you know, and it's okay to take a break. And then you pick up where you're feeling like 
really motivated to go. So you sounds like you have a lot of those options. So it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I want to mention is even though I've, I'm sort of in the middle of books right now and I'm doing marketing and, and promoting the book, you know, a writer still has to write. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to make it uh, a routine to, to get up each morning and do something, you know, mm-hmm. you're really not a writer unless you write. And so mm-hmm whether it's stream of consciousness writing that I do, whether it's journaling, uh, whether it's just writing a little short story based on a writing prop that I found. Um, I've found that it's good to keep those uh, writing muscles exercised and and in shape so that when you do start your next book or novel that uh, you'll be ready to, to make it happen. Oh, that is the best advice. Thank you for sharing that because that is true. You know, you can take a break from the writing of a novel, but keep your writing routine in place because that's a muscle that you train and you train over again. And it's something that you do. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that because if you stop, then you have to train yourself all over again. So great advice. And you said you do it first thing in the morning, usually have my cup of coffee before my wife gets up and, uh, and and have at it for a good 30 minutes to an hour. Yeah. Wonderful. Everybody do what Peter does. Great tip. Thank you, Peter. Where can people find you and your books, Peter? Well, the easiest place is to go to amazon.com or barnesandnoble.com mm-hmm. and, uh, and get the, the book there. You can also just go to your local bookstore and ask them to order it if they don't have it on the shelves already. You can go to my um, website and there are links uh, to Amazon and Barnes and Noble there at spectacularbidbook.com. I am on Twitter and Facebook uh, as well. You can find me there. So I'd be happy to talk and, and, uh, and listen to whatever you have to say. And the music blog is? Hooksandharmony.com. It's all spelled out. Perfect. And I will link to all those places in the show notes so people can get directly to you on your different channels. And Peter, thank you so much for the gift of your time and all the wonderful advice and being so open and sharing such great information. I really appreciate your time today. Oh, I love talking about Spectacular Bid, and I appreciate the time that you've given me to do that. Of course, and he sounds like an amazing horse and an amazing book, so congratulations on all your successes. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and riding, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes, and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author, who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.